Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. This week on Babel, John speaks with Hassan Salama about his time as the inaugural dean at the Paris School of International Affairs, as well as his time working with the UN. Then, John, Will, and I discuss the role of both educational training and practical experience in the policy world. Hassan Salama is a Paris-based Lebanese academic with more than three decades in public service and academia. He headed the UN mission in Libya from 2017 to 2020, twice served as a senior advisor to the UN Secretary General, and was political advisor to the UN Assistance Mission in Iraq in 2003. He was also the founding dean of the Paris School of International Affairs, part of Sciences Po. Hassan, welcome to Babel. Thank you. You are a scholar of Arab governments and have spent a lot of your academic career describing the shortcomings of Arab governments. How did your academic work inform your policy work? Well, I spent five decades of my career basically going back and forth between academia and action. Academia, I started in Beirut at AUB and St. Joseph University, and later I spent 25 years at Sciences Po. But during all this period, I sometimes fled academia and went into action as member of the Lebanese government. You were the Minister of Culture, I remember, because we were attending a conference on Iraq, and they said, Hassan Salama is not here because he's just been appointed Minister of Culture. That's true. That was 2000. And before that, I advised the Lebanese government in the negotiation with Israel in Madrid and Washington. Later, instead of serving the Lebanese government, I started serving at the UN mainly advising Kofi Annan during his second term, helping him in Iraq. It means going back and forth. I always felt that both sides are benefiting from this nomadic approach to professional career. On the one hand, when you are an academic, you go somewhere to Iraq or Libya or Lebanon or Tunisia, people, are happy that you can give them a background, a comparative approach to other cases so they don't feel that they are absolutely different from other cases. And some detachment from current events and how to plan for the future, why a constitution needs time to be agreed by various groups, why you shouldn't go into elections immediately because if you do it, without security or without a commitment by the various players to accept the result, you may produce a new problem instead of solving one. So this kind of academic wisdom is appreciated by the players because they feel that is based on thinking. On the other hand, your students, when you come back, are happy that you can tell them real anecdotes from the ground, not only what you have read You tell them not what they could find in any book on the UN, but how the UN operates in places like Iraq, Libya, or elsewhere. 
not what you have read in books about conflict resolution, but how you have succeeded or failed in resolving a conflict yourself. Both sides were happy from this back and forth spent between academia and I would say real life. What was your first experience taking your academic experience and applying it to a real-life political problem? Well, it was to a large extent Lebanon itself, where the challenge was different. I knew the players. I knew the situation. But I was Lebanese. So the question is a Proustian one to a certain extent. Me needs to be an other. You need to accept some kind of schizophrenia while be emotionally attached to the country, being detached as an advisor to the tripartite committee that produced Taif. It was the Taif Accords in 1989? Yes, October 1989. How did you get drafted into that? Because before that, I have read a paper on the weakness and paralysis of the Arab League of States in Tunis, when the Arab League was in Tunis. And who was moderating that session? Lakhdar Brahim. And he was taken by what you may call my youngster's temerity. And we became friends. And something similar happened with Kofi Annan. I was in the Lebanese government, and the Lebanese government asked me to organize the Arab League Summit in 2002. And Kofi came. That was March 2002. The idea of a war against Iraq was in the making. And Kofi needed also to meet discreetly the Iraqis who came to that summit. And he liked my modest contribution to that. And immediately when I left the government, 15 months later, I had this quote from New York. Hey, you are outside the government. Why don't you go to Iraq? So things happened. I said most of your academic work was really on the failings, the shortcomings of Arab states, of the imperfections of Arab governments. In some ways, that makes you an improbable partner to these governments because you see their flaws and so many are unwilling to admit their flaws. That's true. And some of them didn't admit them. When I wrote my PhD dissertation and published it on Saudi Arabia, I was persona non grata in the kingdom for almost 15 years. When I wrote my book on power and state in the Arab Levant, I was persona non grata in both Iraq and Syria. When I wrote about Lebanon, a lot of local groups were extremely unhappy with me. What makes them change their mind sometimes later? When they discover that these are really academic books, I am not writing polemics. I am not taking sides in any conflict. I'm just saying that these countries should be governed in a different way. When they come to the conclusion that I am not being inspired by their rival or their enemy, and it takes them sometimes a few months, more often a few years, to accept, to talk back to me, when these books or these academic articles had been published. You had an approach to what 
successful politics might look like that was informed by both your experience and also the intellectual work you did as a political scientist thinking about politics. I think the first time I saw your work was the book you edited, Democracy Without Democrats, about 25 years ago, an edited volume that argued that there was a path forward for the Arab world. It wouldn't look like the American path. It wouldn't look like the European path, but it represented a way to gain greater success in Arab politics. And I'm wondering how that work influenced the work you did in Iraq and Libya. And in particular, how did your experience trying to reassemble post-dictatorial politics in Iraq help inform the way you thought the UN had to try to help play a similar role in Libya? Well, in Iraq, the challenge was clear, John. I mean, you had a UN resolution basically labeling the American presence as military occupation. And then there was another resolution that said that the UN had to play a vital role. But vital role was too ceremonial to be serious. What kind of a role? So we sat with the late Sergio Vieira de Mello and we said, what can we do to make it vital? And the thing to do was to go and to talk to all those to whom the Americans were not talking. That started with Ayatollah Sistani in Najaf and ended with former members of the Ba'ath Party. We learned a lot from these meetings. For example, it is to us that Sistani said that he will never accept a constitution written by some law firm in New York or elsewhere, and he wanted Iraqis to write the constitution. And we supported that. Of course, the American leadership on the ground was not happy with us, but that was the way to go. And then we wanted the Iraqis to be part of designing the transition. So Bremer had in mind a number of Iraqi expatriates who just came back to Iraq and to appoint them as consultative and rule the country. And I remember telling him, but you are giving yourself more powers than Saddam Hussein. This is not the way to go. So we started transforming step by step. And that's how the transitional governance body was built of 25 Iraqis. And my, my little joy, was to introduce some people Bremer and others were not happy with, including a member of the Iraqi Communist Party and a radical leftist Kurdish notable, in order to say, we want to go in representing as many Iraqis as possible in this transition and to open up. You don't want the Ba'athists? Okay, but let's have at least some other parties than the 10 or 15 guys who came with you when you defeated the dictator. In Libya, it was different. In Libya, I didn't go immediately after the fall of the regime. In Libya, we went there after the country was already in the middle of a civil war. So it was a completely different challenge. Here, you are not building a post-dictatorial regime immediately after the fall of the dictator by having a constitution, having election after a transitional period where people are given some role 
in designing their own future. In Libya, you had first to stop the civil war. And we did it. In December 2017, I was able to stop an attack of Musrata against Tripoli at the very last moment. I really stop it physically by putting myself before the cars starting to move out of Musrata towards Tripoli. And then we had the big attack by General Haftar against Tripoli. And when I discovered that the ceasefire cannot be produced by a shuttle diplomacy between Tripoli and Haftar, mainly because there was too much foreign interference in the war and that the war was becoming more and more international, I changed my strategy. And instead of having you, international community, coming later and accepting and blessing what the National Conference of Libyans would have decided, I want you to agree on a consensus that sends a strong message to the Libyans that there is a minimal consensus among those who interfere in Libyan affairs on a minimum agreement. We worked on that between August 2019 and January 2020. We were together able to bring Putin and to bring Erdogan and Sisi. Erdogan and Sisi were meeting for the first time in six years in that meeting on Libya in January 2020. So the Libyans got a clear message that the international community has agreed on a minimum among themselves. So that encouraged the implementation of the three tracks, military, economic, and political, that the Libyans were invited to participate in. That's how we produced a ceasefire that is still holding. So it was different. And this is something one should keep in mind. When you are a mediator in a conflict, you are faced with two pitfalls. The first one is, oh, I have seen that elsewhere in that or that country. And I'm going to repeat it here. This would be a mistake. Or the other one, it's so different that I should forget all my former experience and try to invent something new. The real challenge is to make a balance in osmosis of your past experience and of the idiosyncrasies of each conflict you have to deal with. That's how I approached Libya, with my former experience in Lebanon, with the Taif Agreement, in Iraq, with the 2003 Majlis al-Hukm al-Intiqali, with Yemen in 1994. I tried to draw some lessons from all this, but also respect the idiosyncrasies of the Libyan case, that the country was not divided into two, but that the country had imploded into a number of forces, and that your role was to put together the puzzle rather than bringing two guys and having each of them kiss the other on the two cheeks. You've had, as you just mentioned, a a number of engagements with the UN. You had direct experience with the UN because the UN's been very involved in Lebanon, and you're involved in the UN in Iraq and Libya and in Myanmar and other places. What do people not understand that the UN can do? What do people not understand that the UN can't do? I mean, how do people misassess both the possibilities of the UN 
And what do they not understand about the shortcomings of the UN? I have to be honest here and tell you exactly what I think, which is not going to please some of my colleagues at the UN or elsewhere. When one permanent member of the Security Council, that is, say, the US or Russia, China, is directly involved in a conflict in a matter that is important for that country, the UN has no role because the Security Council is basically paralyzed. That's why the UN has been marginal in a conflict like the Ukraine. You need a situation where the big powers are disinterested in a conflict. Then you can do something. Second condition for the UN to be useful is that you define clearly what the UN can do. Nowadays, you cannot send blue berets all over the world. First, you do not have volunteers for that. The UN doesn't have the budget for that. And in many cases, it has to rely on subcontracting to regional organizations like the African Union, which is not always a happy story, as we have seen in Darfur and elsewhere. So it is not bring the blue berets. No, blue berets can do a few useful things, as they have done in the southern part of my country or in some monitoring situation like Cyprus or the Golan or elsewhere, but they cannot re-establish peace everywhere they are invited to. Three, you need a minimum agreement in the Security Council, and this you need to cultivate. You cannot have this consensus easily. If the international system is heavily polarized, it's very hard to see great powers agree on anything even on things that would not really affect their national interest. They are there to basically block each other. And if you do not have the support of the Security Council as a special envoy, you can't go very far. Finally, to succeed in the mediation, you need your boss to take his phone and call Mr. Lavrov and Mr. Blinken and Mr. Ledrian and tell him, look, I have sent a guy to that conflict, and he is the only mediator. So we don't need many mediators anywhere. And also to talk to the regional organization as well. Look, there is a mediator, you can help him, you can be disinterested by him, but you cannot compete with him. Because if you compete with him, it means that the local players would pick and choose from this mediator ideas, this other mediator's ideas, and then you cannot find a solution. You need your boss to support you and uh, try and prevent other players from coming and saying, hey, we are doing this. No, you don't do this. There is one mediator, you can help him, he should listen to you, but you cannot compete with him and come with alternative ideas to the ideas he's putting on the table for the various players. Do people appropriately define what success looks like in a UN context? Libya, where you put a lot of effort in, has elections scheduled for the end of December. There's a lot of anxiety about whether they'll happen at all, what they might look like, whether Libya is going in a good direction. How should we benchmark success for the UN, given that politics 
is often very messy, even in successful situations. Yesterday, I had a phone call from a foreign minister who's telling me, what do you think of the idea that Libya should not have elections before all the weapons have been taken from the various groups, before demilitarization, basically? What? No elections before demilitarization? You have 20 million pieces of weapons in Libya. That means you should have a benchmark here that demilitarization will take years, possibly a generation before it's implemented. So you cannot condition that. There are things you can do immediately. There are things you can do in a very long time. Three times during my stay in Libya, I had to reopen the oil fields because one group went and stopped the production in these oil fields. This you can do immediately. And the benchmark would be, is oil flowing or not? Demilitarization is not a short-term perspective. It's something you should start, but you will certainly leave the country without seeing it completed. It will take time. So I believe that people should have a sophisticated mind in defining what is feasible on the short term, on the mid term, on the long term. Reopening the fields is a short term perspective. Having the judiciary united and the central bank united is a short term. And you have objectives that will take a lot of time. Infuse a culture, a democratic culture in a country. This is a generational. This you cannot do by decree. Demilitarize the country. Recycling those who have been fighting. And groups are like an accordion in countries like Libya. When you have a ceasefire, it's a very small accordion. It's closed. When there is need for fighters, it opens up. In the meanwhile, these guys have been working in banks, in insurance, and they have been teachers in schools, etc. And there is one point where their city is involved in a war, and it asked all these guys to come back and to fight. That's what happened in April 2019 when Haftar attacked Tripoli. When he attacked, I would say the armed groups in Tripoli had maximum of 2,000 fighters. But like two months later, they were like five or six times that figure. So it is not that people are full-time militiamen. So you need to understand that private military firm is different from fighters coming from a regime. And they are very different from the largest group of mercenaries. And these are expatriates, notably from sub-Saharan Africa, who work in Libya and who are mobilized more or less voluntarily by the armed group to go and fight. These are not mercenaries. These are people who have been somehow compelled to go and participate in the fighting. So for most those who have been fighting, Libyans or non-Libyans, the question is not to go back home. The question is to go back to a civilian work. And for that, you need a ceasefire and you need a political solution, and you need a basic agreement on the redistribution of wealth. 
because Iraq and Libya have at least one thing in common. Both are rentier economy. And civil wars in rentier economy very quickly turn around the basic issue, who has the money and how much of it you have access to. This is a useful segue to get back to the academic part of your career, because that's a very academic observation based on things that you've written that I've read. You were the founding dean of the Paris School of International Affairs. How has your practical experience shaped what you think is the foundational education that practitioners need? As you were conceptualizing what the curriculum should look like, how did your career as a practitioner inform your academic approach to the training future practitioners should have? That's a very, very, very interesting question. And I have to confide to you that you are the first one to ask me that question. It's a very important issue. I insisted on having a compulsory minor in regional affairs. Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Middle East, you choose. But you need not to be in the globalization, blah, 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 all the time. I need you to learn a language and I need you to know more about Zimbabwe or about Nepal or about Costa Rica. I need you to have regional experts telling you what they have learned from their books and writing and ground research. This was crucial. A second point is what you may call the recycling of my colleagues. One of my mentors is Lakhdar Brahim. He was 80 when I built the school. I went to see him. I said, what are you doing? Come and tell the younger generation about your experience. He took his class to New York and they attended the Security Council meetings. He took another class a year later to Cote d'Ivoire to see what the UN was doing in Cote d'Ivoire. And this is the same with Alvaro de Soto, with a number of people who have been mediating. I had the academic coming and telling them about the theory of international relations and the conflict resolution methods, etc. But it also insisted on having a number of people who have been on the ground as mediators coming and telling them about their experience. When you have been a nomad between the university and the ground, like I have been, you do not denigrate any half of your life. So I wanted my colleagues at the university to accept the idea that they have half of the truth and the other half is in the hands of those who have been on the ground. The curriculum first, the faculty second. The third is that I insisted that the third semester of their two-year master needs to be on the ground as interns in embassies, in international organizations, in NGOs. And I had an office helping them. This is quite common in America, but this is uncommon in the European system where you basically are put in a school at the age of three and you come out with a PhD at 25 without having seen the real world during this period. I thank you for the question because people do not ask me usually that one. Which is crazy. 
Ghassan Salameh, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you for inviting me. Next up, John Will and I look at the role of both educational background and practical experience in the policy world. I want our discussion today to touch on how Professor Salame conceived the curriculum at the Paris School of International Affairs, drawing from what he called a nomadic career between academia and real life. As a think tank, CSIS probably fits somewhere in between the two, depending on who you ask. And I'm quite interested in this idea of how we educate and train people who work in foreign policy. Will, you got your master's degree from Georgetown School of Foreign Service about five and a half years ago. And John, you got your PhD from Harvard in 97. What did you each get out of those programs and how did they prepare you for working at a place like CSIS or in foreign policy writ large? So I went to Georgetown coming from a undergrad program that had taught me a lot of Arabic, had taught me how to understand early Islamic texts, historical documents, but had not prepared me to think about policy at all. So I was really keen to do a master's that was in an area kind of surrounded by politics, but also I think that would give me a grounding in modern Middle Eastern politics. And so I think one of the main things that any graduate program teaches you is the ability to read a lot, like very quickly, and to pass out what is helpful information. And I think that ability and that skill has definitely been really helpful for me at CSIS because a lot of what I do here is reading a lot of information and trying to work out what is helpful. I think the most relevant experience I had was writing my thesis, which was research that I did in Lebanon on how to get aid to besieged areas in Syria. And that process of conducting interviews in Lebanon and then doing a literature review, doing drafts, trying to think, how do I make this relevant to policymakers? That's really similar to the kinds of things that I do now at CSIS. So I think that was probably the most directly relevant. But I think more broadly speaking, it changed how I think about how decisions are made and how systems work. A lot of the study was quite theoretical. The program I did was Masters in Arab Studies, which is kind of known for being quite academic compared to other regional master's degrees. But it really made me think through theories. I came out thinking, actually, we do need to think about how information is created, how decisions are made, and the systems that underpin all of that. So I think those things are helpful for thinking through foreign policy issues as well. So in many ways, I came from the absolute opposite side. I had an undergraduate degree in public policy. I worked on Capitol Hill for Senator Moynihan for two years doing foreign policy and defense. I went to graduate school not to learn the practical thing, but to learn a lot of the, the more theoretical things. What graduate school got me was a number of things. You know, One is it gives you a structured way to pick up languages and travel in the Middle East and be confronted by just how much you don't know and need to learn. It was helpful to have a year where I read 300 books. You don't read the 300th book the same way you read the first book. Partly you get a sense of the narrative, but you also get a sense of how to read books. And the most important thing I learned in graduate school is an ability to hear the silences, to notice what people don't know. And if they did know it, it would be useful. So much of education is about synthesis. You know, first high school, you try to learn the facts. College, you learn to, to bring together two different views and fuse them. And I think in graduate school, you learn to weigh them, discard parts, adopt parts, come up with your own 
understanding of something, an understanding which is unique and which adds value. And it seems to me that the task of a think tank is not the task of a bureaucrat to synthesize information. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who do that. The responsibility and the role of a think tank is to think of things that people haven't thought of, to see things that people haven't paid attention to, and to my mind, most importantly, to frame things in useful ways that add value and help people understand and ultimately make decisions about them. I think the way I see that issue and the way I approach that issue is informed by my graduate work. It's not the things I studied, but it's the practice of looking and thinking about where are the seams between things. What are the misunderstandings or the misapprehensions that lead people to these conclusions and how do you lead them to other conclusions? That whole process of taking apart an analysis, taking it as something to interpret, to interrogate, to improve upon that I think is at the core of what the Middle East program is trying to do. We were all pretty interested hearing about Professor Salame requiring students to do a regional minor in the Paris school. All of us in the Middle East program have a strong regional focus and background, and even our interns will have language training and generally have spent time physically in the region. But there are many people in Washington, senior government officials included, who work on and write about the Middle East and do not have that clear regional background. Even in CSIS, there are topical and regional programs whose work overlaps quite often. Could you both share your thoughts about this regional topical area expertise divide? When I was trying to figure out what the Middle East program should be, one of the first things is you have to differentiate it in some way from the other programs. And I thought, to have another program where people talk about their past or future jobs in government and how they do them differently than people who have them doesn't really add very much and tends to annoy the people in those jobs. So why don't we have a Middle East program that's doing what nobody else is doing, that's trying to look at issues that nobody is paying attention to, that tries to frame issues coming up in a way that helps people understand what they don't even understand is important yet. And one of the first projects I started doing at CSIS was China-Middle East stuff at a time when nobody was doing China-Middle East stuff. Because I think if you look at it from the space of 2004, 2005, it's clear China's going to have a larger role in the future of the Middle East, and there was nobody doing any work on it. So I heard the silence and decided to move in that direction. As I've tried to hire around the program, as I evaluate interns, as you guys know, what I'm looking for is people who can help us improve what I see as our unique value proposition, which is we're the Middle East program in Washington that is genuinely tied to stuff in the Middle East that people don't know and should know. It gets reflected in our approach to the newsletter. It gets reflected in how we do the Meze articles in the newsletter, the short featurey things. It's reflected in how we do the podcast. I had a number of people who are very thoughtful people in a Washington context who have said, wouldn't it be great to be on, on Babel? And I said, but that's not what Babel's trying to do. We're not trying to capture the Washington conversation sent to the world. We're trying to introduce into a global conversation the policy-relevant things in the Middle East that people haven't noticed yet or people haven't thought about or people haven't thought about in a nuanced way. And we can help move that discussion along. As I say, it is baked into everything we do and baked into my sense that we need to differentiate ourselves. 
there's no, nobody needs yet another program. People need a program that does something different. And this is the different thing that we do. So I am the product of a quite intense regional focus. I think a really important part of that is language study. I think it is incredibly important because if you think about it the other way around, you take someone from China who says they're an expert on the US and comes and writes a book about the US, and then you find out they can't speak English. I mean, it would be ridiculous. You'd say like, well, what on earth do they know? Language is not just about reading articles in the language that might not be easy to translate. I think it's about the time you spend learning, the associated time studying in the countries, the experiences you have while you do that, the aspects of culture that you are exposed to as you do it. You usually will watch films and read books or novels and things like that. I think all of this is really important to building up an understanding of the context. And the mistakes you make and the humility you learn and it seems to me that part of the importance of language study is not learning verb conjugations, but figuring out what are the limits of that friendship? How do I understand what that person's really trying to tell me? How do I build a partnership with that person where the person feels respected, invested in the relationship? And thinking you know how to do it and doing it wrong, and then doing it again and doing it better. I think is a very important part of the language study process that you never learn in a classroom. You know, I think when I lived in Cairo, I never lived on campus. And I think that's really important. And one day my circuit board melted down and I had to fix it. And one time I had a problem with my washing machine and it had to get fixed. You have to deal with a plumber and you have to do all those things. And you have to get people to want to help you. And ultimately, a lot of the research we do is persuading people to want to help us. And the things I learned and the things I learned not to do in language study was really important for that. So leaving this educational piece for now, what kind of skills do we in the Middle East program try to develop in our interns that they'll need for their careers and that we think they're unlikely to have developed in school? And if I may, I'd like to start because I, I'm sure Will knows where I'm going to go with this. To me, a lot of what we do on a daily basis, especially on the research side, can feel a lot or look a lot like what you might do in an academic setting at school, but it's different in a lot of subtle ways. One thing that we've started talking about a lot here is telling interns to avoid doing homework. And it's all about saying, this is not you showing me how smart you are and how much you know. It's about answering the specific question I've asked or completing the specific task I've given you in a timely manner. And this is completely different than what it was like in academia, at least in my experience, which admittedly is not a huge amount. But I remember being taught in school to purposefully include in my papers references to theories or tangentially related moments in time or pieces of history to demonstrate breadth of knowledge. It's kind of similar to name dropping in a professional setting. It's all about even though naming this person doesn't actually advance my argument, naming them shows that I have a bit of credibility and I know what I'm talking about in that sense. But in our narrow corner of things, all that does is demonstrate that you are being inefficient. So that I think is a pretty interesting distinction. And I think that's something that our interns take away. Partly that, that's an academic consistency of showing your work, right? Which certainly is part of 
dissertations, you have to have a chapter where you talk about everything everybody's ever talked about before to show you've done the reading. I think by virtue of who we are and where we are, we don't have to show we've done all the reading. We've done all the reading. We've done a lot of the reading. I think that the most important thing is to get people used to thinking about audience and thinking about an audience that doesn't have a lot of time. I was talking to somebody who spent many years, decades in the CIA and said, you know, I, I, everything I wrote was never more than two pages, right? People are going through stacks and stacks and stacks of paper, thousands of words every day. You've got to grab their attention. They have to understand what you're trying to say. Do they understand why it's important? And can they remember it three days later? Because a lot of the time, the answer is no. And in a policy world, that's a fail. And something which is a key element of that, which we do, which is completely different in an academic setting, is storytelling. And I think very often the way to make people remember things is to elicit some kind of emotion, to shock them, to surprise them, to make them worried about something. That Some kind of emotional response is really important to getting people to remember things. And a lot of what we do is try and identify ways to shock our audience or surprise them. And the Meze series that John mentioned earlier is, is a part of this. And I think that's a key thing that interns wrestle with while they're with us is at the start, it's a frustrating process trying to find these stories that will truly surprise people. But if you can do it, and if you can write in 250 words, something that makes a point and makes a point memorably, then I think that is a skill that you can take with you for the rest of your life that will serve you in a whole host of different situations. And I would view that as kind of the greatest thing that differentiates us from an academic environment. Will, John, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.